Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll be picking up at verse 10, reading through verse 18. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we read. Oh God, we come to your word now this evening and we plead before your throne that you, by your Holy Spirit, would illumine our hearts and our minds to grasp your word, that in grasping it, we might seek to live for your glory and your glory alone. We ask all of these things then in the name of our High Priest, whose name is love, Jesus Christ Himself. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 10. I remind you again that the author has been setting forth Jesus as superior to the angels. Verse 9, now crowned with glory, and honor. Verse 10. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Well, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's Word. Again, I remind you, as we've been going through the book of Hebrews uh, every once a month or so, the author has been making this case that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. In chapter 1, he did so by setting forth Christ according to His divine nature. That as God, He is Himself greater than the angels. Verse 3, he is described as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
But he moves then on into chapter 2, and here he is not referring to Christ according to his divine nature. Now he moves and says, according to his human nature, he is still superior to those angels who mediated that old covenant. And thus, if he is indeed superior to those angels who mediated the old covenant, how much greater of a position are we in as those who are in the new covenant? We'll look at that in weeks ahead. So then, Jesus Christ, according to his divine nature, superior to those angels, but also as a man, he is superior to the angels. Verse 6, verse 5, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. But the question that we must wrestle with this evening is this. How is it that what Christ did comes to benefit men and women? We, we see in verses 5-9 through nine that He accomplished this work, but how is it that that work benefits men and women? Thus, this evening, we're going to consider it through the lens of what the author of Hebrews says, namely, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we'll see then that through His incarnation and death, Christ defeated Satan and became the founder of salvation in order to bring His brothers to glory. Through the incarnation and death, Christ defeated Satan and became the founder of salvation in order to bring his brothers to glory. So then, the need for the incarnation. And this is really one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. That the Son of God takes on human flesh without there ever being any combining of those two natures or any blending of those two natures. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism reminds us, He is God and man in two distinct natures and one person. And throughout church history, men trying to wrestle with this have come to this conclusion Biblically, that the finite cannot contain the infinite. We as finite creatures try to to wrap our minds around this reality. But we as finite creatures cannot fully comprehend. We we apprehend the truth. We, We lay hold of that which God has revealed in His Word. And yet, as finite creatures, we can never fully wrap our arms around the truth. These things are too mysterious for us. And yet, at the same time, we lay hold of those truths as God has revealed them in His Word. But that doesn't take away the fact that it's a mystery. That God, who is spirit and cannot be seen, is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. That the Son of God, who is above time and space, indeed created time and space, enters into time and space. Or the one 
who is the Creator of all things, is born in human flesh. So then, the need for the Incarnation is then further explained for us in our text. We're going to consider that in four different ways this evening. The need for the Incarnation, first, in order that Christ, verse 10, might become the founder of our salvation. Look with me at verse 10. For it was fitting that He, referring to God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, that is Jesus Christ, perfect through suffering. Now the word here that is used for founder in the ESV is translated founder and other versions translated author or pioneer. The word is taken from, from two Greek words. First, arche, meaning the first or the beginning. And the second, ago, meaning to lead. He is the, the first one who leads. He is the one who goes before. As some translations put it, He is the pioneer of our salvation. This word comes up again actually in Hebrews chapter 12. If you want to flip just a few pages with me. The author in chapter 11 has laid forth these heroes of the Christian faith. But they were all looking forward, ultimately, to the author and finisher of our faith. Verse 2 of chapter 12 calls us to look to Jesus, and then the author uses this word, archegos. That is, the one who leads. He says, in the ESV again, is translated, he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. This word is used elsewhere in Scripture to communicate the fact that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the one who goes before His people, His brothers, those who would follow Him. He is a unique figure in history. Like like Adam who came before us, who represents a people, so Christ likewise represents a people. And He must Go first. This brings us then to a reality that we we must come to terms with. That goes against the very grain of our nature. It is that Christ's work was needed, not yours. Christ's work and Christ's work alone was needed, not yours. For we ourselves were those who are fallen in Adam. And we, in our fall, in Adam, become corrupt in our nature. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Our very natures are corrupt in Adam. But, but not just our natures, but our works. As Isaiah tells us, all of our even, quote, righteous works are but like a filthy and polluted garment. So then, both our very nature and our works which we do are sinful. That is to say, not only who we are is sinful, but what we do is sinful. But Christ comes and and He restores all of this. You see, for in the Incarnation, one who is unstained by nature unstained, 
born of a virgin, can now restore those who by nature are stained. And one who is also not only unstained in his very nature, but also perfect in his deeds. As the psalmist reminds us and and asks the question in Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? The answer? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has a clean heart and pure hands? But Jesus Christ alone. And so then, the incarnation and the life of suffering enables Christ to become, as the translation puts it, the, He becomes perfect through suffering. That is, He becomes the complete Savior that men and women need. So it's His work and His work alone that is needed. Augustus' top lady captures this in the hymn Rock of Ages. He says, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. So his work is also then for those whom he represents. It's for those whom he represents. In verse 11, they're described as being those who are of one source. He is indeed the founder of their salvation. His work is is credited on behalf of those whom He represents. Those whom He has been given by the Father. They are described in a number of ways in this text. Those who are sanctified, they are described in verse 12 as His brothers. They are described in verse 13 as His children. They are described in verse 16 as the offspring of Abraham. This is the one, these are the ones whom Christ represents. But this, the founder of their salvation, also implies that people would follow Him. That men and women who place their trust in this Savior, in the One who goes before, they too would would follow in His footsteps of humiliation to exaltation. So Christ first of all, becomes the founder of their salvation by means of the Incarnation, first and foremost. Secondly, in verses 11-13, through the Incarnation is necessary in order for Christ to lead His brothers to glory. Look at verse 11. They all have one source. That is why He is not ashamed to call them His brothers. Now, this quotation that he then goes on to use in verse 12 is taken from Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22 oftentimes is is maybe overlooked because of its close proximity to Psalm 23. But Psalm 22 is one of the clearest expressions of, of the psalmist looking forward to the day when the Messiah figure will come. Psalm 22 takes, in fact, Jesus Himself repeats a number of these things and the Gospel writers include them. 
In verse 1 of Psalm 22, the psalmist says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words which Jesus repeats as He hangs upon the cross. And then further, in verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax it is melted within my breast. For dogs encompass me, a circle, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. These are the very words which Jesus utters as He hangs upon the cross as, as dogs, as, as these filthy men stand around Him and crucify Him. But the psalmist doesn't end there, does he? And this is what the author of Hebrews picks up then. Upon this great triumph, he cries out the psalmist for the deliverance of the Lord. And in verse 20, 21, he says, Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then comes what the author of Hebrews takes from Psalm 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. This is what Christ, as the one who goes before, does on our behalf. But notice also what verse 11 says. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. This is an amazing statement. Well, a statement that we would never think of on our own. Because we, as sinful creatures, are often ashamed of our company. Those who don't seem to align with our standards or our looks or our personalities are the ones that we're ashamed to be around. But Christ, if, if anyone had a reason not to be around anyone, it would be Christ. He is undefiled. And yet, my friends, He is not ashamed to identify with you. You, as a sinful creature, He puts His loving arms around and says, you are my brothers and you're coming with me to glory. The Gospel writers so beautifully depict this reality, Jesus doing this in His earthly ministry of identifying with, with those who men and women simply do not identify with. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus is seen reclining at table with many tax collectors and sinners. And the scribes of the Pharisees come to Jesus' disciples and say, why on earth is He eating with these types of people? Remember Jesus' response when He overhears the Pharisees say that. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. This is the work of Christ. It is to bring sinners like you and like I to glory as He identifies with us. So I challenge you to consider this evening, are you ashamed of your Lord? 
He is not ashamed to call you His brother. But how often do we come up short and fail to identify to a watching world that He is our Lord and our brother. Thomas Watson, a Puritan writer, describes this beautiful complex of the, the incarnation and Christ's identification with us. He says, He was poor that He might make us rich. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that He might give us His Spirit. He lay in the manger that we may lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that He might bring us to heaven. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the incarnation is necessary in order that Christ might defeat Satan and make propitiation. Verses 14-17. through 17. First, in order that He might defeat Satan. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of those same things that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. And this again brings us back to the solidarity that we as creatures have with one another, but also with our first head, Adam. We again are either under and in Adam or under and in Christ. We are a part of one kingdom or the other. And to be in Adam, as Paul says in Romans 5, is condemnation. Or elsewhere, to be in Adam is ultimately to be a slave to Satan and subject to Satan. And thus, through the incarnation and subsequent death and resurrection of Christ, He defeats Satan. Satan's grip is no longer on you as a Christian. This has occurred and it's been once for all. This breach with the power of Satan is once for all having moved you from His domain into the kingdom of the marvelous Son. But then in verse 17, not only does He defeat Satan, but He also makes propitiation for our sins. And this propitiation refers not so much to the removal of guilt, though that does occur in the death of Christ, but the propitiation which Christ accomplishes has reference to satisfying God's holy wrath for sin. We could put it this way, that God saves us by Himself from Himself. He saves us by Himself, by means of the Son of God taking on flesh and going to the cross, but He saves us from His wrath. And again, this is what the author of Hebrews is setting forth in chapter 2. Why then, why then, friends, would we, would we turn back when we have such a glorious high priest? And then fourthly, and finally, the incarnation, verse 18, is necessary in order that Jesus Christ might help those who are being tempted. Look again at verse 18. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Isn't it true, uh, so often when we go through various troubles and trials in our lives, that the ones that we often desire to confide in are those who have gone through similar situations. Because they, they get it. They, they get what we've been through and we know we can go to them because they truly understand. That is precisely what the author of Hebrews is telling us about Jesus. You see, He can sympathize with your suffering because He has gone through it Himself. You can confide in Him because He truly gets it more so than anyone else on this earth whom you may want to confide in. Jesus Christ can sympathize with our weakness. If you flip over to chapter 4, the author makes a similar point at verse 15. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's been through it all. He can sympathize with you. Whatever you are experiencing, whether you're struggling with the providence of God in your life, or whether you're struggling with trials and temptations to sin, Christ is the one who can sympathize with you in your weakness. But see, it's one thing to have somebody whom you can confide in. That's great. But the author doesn't stop there. It's not only that Jesus can sympathize with our weakness. That's great. But did you notice what else he says? He is able to help. You see, not everyone that can sympathize with our weakness can actually do anything for us. But Jesus having gone through the flames. He can sympathize, but he can help. Herman Bobbing puts it this way. He knows from his own experience not only what it is to be tempted and can pity us in our weaknesses, but because he did not, like Adam, succumb to temptations, he can also help those who are tempted. You see, Jesus, in His life, he went, he went deeper and He went further than any of us can imagine. He, he, has, he has pressed up against the walls of temptation further than any of us because we often give in so early to temptation. But Christ, as the one who goes before us. He has gone further. He has pushed up against the, the, the winds as they blew upon His breast. He pressed further than anyone so that He might be able 
to help when you go through the flames of trials and temptations. And that's why, my friends, so often the Scriptures are urging us, are beckoning us to go to Him. To go to Him to find not only uh, sympathy for your, for your status, but for help in the midst of your trials. So go to Him. Go to Him and to Him alone for help. And that then leads us to ask this question. Are there things and are there areas in your life tonight that you are being tempted in? For those who heard this message, they were tempted, were they not, to, to, to go back upon their confession of Christ. To turn back to those old forms of, of life and worship. And so we too today struggle with the same temptations to turn back upon our confession of Christ. Here the encouragement the author of Hebrews tells his audience in chapter 10, but we, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Or maybe you sit here this evening and you doubt in the current place in which God has you, you doubt whether or not Christ will truly be with you at all times. Is that you this evening? Doubting His presence? Doubting His love? You're not alone. The audience to whom this author wrote struggled in the same areas. They, too, facing persecutions and flames and trials. And the author reminds them the words of Jesus, I will never leave you or forsake you. You see, He is the one who can sympathize with our weakness and He can help because He's been through it Himself. So then, the Incarnation is not merely some doctrine that we affirm as a church, but it's absolutely vital, vital even for our Christian lives, that, that God saw fit in the person of the Son to take human flesh in order to meet us where we were. He came down in order that we might rise. And so may we, this time and as we go forward, may we be those who would, who would follow in the footsteps of our Lord as our pioneer, as the author and the finisher of our faith. May we follow in His footsteps in coming to meet the needs of those around us where they are. And thus point them to the One who can actually help them in their weakness and trials. Let's pray. O oh God, beyond all praising, we worship You this day. 
We sing the love amazing that songs simply cannot repay. Would you teach us from your word that whether our tomorrows be filled with good or ill, we will triumph through our sorrows and rise to bless you still because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf and through us. We thank you. We praise you for the wonders and this wonder world of salvation which you have revealed to us in your word. May we serve you this day and the days ahead by the power of your Spirit. And in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.